This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. The coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. Well, Peter, it's great to be back at the Books for Breakfast table after a long summer break, isn't it? Indeed it is, yeah. And it has been a good bit of a break, yeah. Yeah, great break. And here we are again. We're facing into an exciting time of new books coming out from September onwards. And we're here to discuss books, to talk about writers, hopefully to meet with them and to chat to them about their work. And it's also great that there's an opening of festivals and events again. It's great to see. And tonight, Thursday the 16th, sees the launch of the Fingal Poetry Festival in Skerries. It's in its second year now and it's beginning to grow and grow and grow from their base at Skerries Mills. And it's a festival which aims, they say, to present the very best of poetry to the widest possible audience. And it's going to run from Thursday the 16th tonight through to Sunday the 19th of September. It includes film poems from Kate Miller and Thomas Bretzing, poetry readings from loads of poets, um, Enda Cole Green, Tony Curtis, Rita Ann Higgins, Adam Wyatt, Afric McKay. There's also going to be a bilingual reading by Cathy Niveldoon and there's be poetry treasure hunts and performances for all ages for children's children and adults. So it sounds really good, Peter. Yeah, it sounds like a colourful, lively poetry festival. And of course, we're both looking forward to reading there too on the on the last night of Sunday, the 19th of December. Sorry. Oh, I'm looking, I'm looking too far ahead. 19th of September. Obviously, we're out of practice. Or at least I'm out of practice here. 6pm in, yeah, it's in the in the mills and scaries. And thanks to the festival directors and to Coyle Green and Ernestine um, Wolgar for inviting us along. Yeah, it's really nice them, and I can't wait to go on kind of it'll feel nearly like a bit of a summer holiday late summer holiday mightn't it Peter going to Scaries off to Scaries for the holidays I know yeah it'll be a big adventure so I'm going to bring my bucket of spade and my poems of course so really looking forward to anybody who feels like coming along on that Sunday night and of course do do go to those those other events if you're close to Scaries it's going to be great indeed and, and you mentioned there's lots of new books coming out that you're looking forward to reading so any that you'd like to mention well yeah there are so many great books coming out that I'm reading but I'm also looking forward to reading in the coming weeks there's John McKenna's collection of short stories just out from New Ireland. It's called We Seldom Talk About the Past. I've Alana Hopkins's memoir of Aidan Higgins, which I'm reading through and really enjoying. And then, of course, there's Colm Tobin's The Magician. I went into a bookshop recently and I said, can I have it? And he said, oh, you're too early. It's coming out on September the 23rd. So I'm actually looking forward to that. That's the one about Thomas Mann, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, coincidentally, we, we bumped into Colm Tobin over the summer. We were just walking around Marion Square. Do you remember, Peter? And uh, we had a chat with him and he was saying, yeah, it's coming out and it is about Thomas Mann. It's called The Magician, gives a kind of an intimate portrait of the very complex literary figure, Thomas Mann. And the title, apparently the title came about because Thomas Mann's children called him The Magician because of his kind of uncanny ability to create illusion through his art. And I'm looking forward to this book because I think uh, it's kind of going to be a fictional biography and it's come to being imagining what may have been going on behind the scenes in Thomas Mann's own kind of magic show. It's supposed to be quite a breathtaking span as well of life in the 20th century. So it should be one to watch out for. Yeah, indeed, it covers about 60 years in the kind of Mann household. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. And another book, Peter, that I'm looking forward to reading is The Pages by Hugo Hamilton. It's just out from Fourth Estate. And in fact, I want to thank you because you bought it for me as a gift. Always nice to get books as gifts. The best, best kind of gift. Yeah, not least because I've always, I mean, I've always been a big fan of 
of, of Hugo's works, the novel, and, you know, during the Speckled People as well, the, the kind of work of autobiography about his own kind of upbringing, the kind of, kind of mix yeah. of, of German and Irish kind of background. Uh, what's the new one about? Yeah, yeah, well, it's good you mentioned the Speckled People there. What an absolutely beautiful memoir, one of his two memoirs he's written. Yeah, I've also loved uh, Hugo's writing for years. In fact, he's one of the first writers I ever met as he lived very close to where I grew up in Glenageary. And I remember as a teenager seeing him, seeing him walking around and one Saturday morning I opened the Irish Times and there was a short story by Hugo Hamilton in it and I remember going up to him in our local news agent and saying excuse me are you Hugo Hamilton I really liked your story today in the Times <laughs> and I'd say he really enjoyed that this teenager telling him how good he was but yeah he's a skilled writer he's he's written nine novels short stories stage plays two memoirs as I said and this book The Pages which you were just asking me about it's unusual because it has as its narrator a book itself which is a very novel, excuse the pun, approach to a story. And the book is Joseph Roth's masterpiece, Rebellion, about a barrel organ down on his luck. And it tells the story of this, of the, of really the book. And um, it tells the life of its Austrian Jewish author and the book, the Nazi book burnings that took place. And it also covers... Roth's own love for his wife, Friedrich, which was kind of a, she's kind of a troubled woman and the mental institutions where the Holocaust started off. So there's, um, there's also a young German American woman in the book. It's kind of, a, there's a thriller element to this book, a mystery to the book. And I love mystery and thriller elements in books. So I'm looking forward to that too. And indeed, apart from books coming out, I mean, that we're looking forward to. I know you've been busy reading over the summer and I know one of the books that you've been thoroughly enjoying is a book by uh, Lucia Berlin. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and why you liked it. Yeah, and actually, thanks, Peter, for asking me about this. I've been carrying this book around all summer with me, A Manual for Cleaning Women. What a brilliant title by Lucia Berlin with an excellent foreword by the writer Lydia Davis. Um, and You know, I was, I was talking earlier there about being gifted books. I felt very lucky to be given this to me by my friend Bernadette Larkin, another great reader. She gave it to me its total gem. I'd never read it before. You kind of enter an itinerant world in this collection. It's a world of laundromats, of motels, of bars, of hospitals, of schools. And it says on the back of the book, actually, that over 50, for over 50 years, she's been one of America's best kept secrets celebrated by readers in the know. And I feel very lucky now to be a reader in the know. When you're reading this book, you travel. That's what I really love about it. You're in Chile. You might be in New Mexico. You might be in the southwest of America. She she could be compared to Raymond Carver, another writer that I absolutely love, because she does make brilliant stories out of ordinary lives. But I think Carver and her, they both have their own unique ways of writing and they both stand out on their own. So I just think she stands out. She's an individual like Carver. Um, and like Carver, her life was ravaged by alcohol, sadly, and she also suffered great pain from scoliosis, a condition she had throughout her life. So she's good at writing about pain, poverty, humiliation, degradation. And that all sounds so miserable, but she writes with such great eloquence and wit. And sometimes they're really funny as well. So I think also you've seen me carrying this book around the house and on the beach and everywhere we've gone this summer because it's a slow read. I've had it with me all summer and I quite like reading books slowly because particularly in this beautiful book A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin each sentence is a superb unit and I think it demands attention um, because this is such vital writing and many of the stories are based on her life. She said I exaggerate a lot and I get fiction and reality mixed up 
but I don't actually ever lie, she says. And I, I quite like that. Her life was rich. It was varied. She was born in Alaska. She grew up in mining camps in the west of America. And then she moved to El Paso with her mother's family when her father was gone off working. And she had quite a privileged life in Chile at um, a, a slightly later time of her life. And as an adult, she lived in New Mexico, New York. And one of her sons remembers actually moving every nine months. But she eventually ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and then finally in L.A. But it's it's, as I said earlier, quite impossible to stop reading these stories because so much seems to happen in them. So I really, if anybody hasn't heard of um, Lucia Berlin, I I highly recommend this book, A Manual for Cleaning Women. A literary genius, the New York Times said, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think you wanted to read us a piece from the book, didn't you? Yeah, I think this uh, piece that I want to read is from a story called Dr. H.A. Moynihan and it's set in El Paso and Dr. H.A. Moynihan was, I think in real life as well, even though it's supposed to be a short story, but I think it is actually based on truth. Uh, Lucia Berlin's grandfather was a dentist in El Paso and in this story uh, he gets the young child to come in and pull his teeth out so he can put false teeth in and it's quite a dramatic story, I have to say. I've written written down, it's just speedy action. It's absolutely excellent. When I finished it, I wrote that down. So I'll just read this bit where um, the teeth have all been pulled out. The teeth were all out. I tried to bring the chair down from the foot pedal, but hit the wrong lever, spinning him around, spattering circles of blood on the floor. I left him, the chair creaking slowly to a stop. I wanted some tea bags. He had purple bite down on them to stop the bleeding. I dumped Mamie's drawer out, talcum, prayer cards, thank you for the flowers. The tea bags were in a can behind the hot plate. The towel in his mouth was soaked crimson now. I dropped it on the floor, shoved a handful of tea bags into his mouth and held his jaws closed. I screamed without any teeth. His face was like a skull, white bones above the vivid, bloody throat. Scary monster, a teapot come alive, yellow and black Lipton tags dangling like parade decorations. I ran to phone my mother, no nickel. I couldn't move him to get to his pockets. He had wet his pants, urine dripping onto the floor. A bubble of blood kept appearing and bursting in his nostril. The phone rang. It was my mother. She was crying. The pot roast, a nice Sunday dinner, even cucumbers and onions, just like Mamie. Help, Grandpa, I said and hung up. He had vomited. Oh, good, I thought, and then giggled because it was a silly thing to think. Oh, good about. I dropped the tea bags into the mess on the floor, wet some towels and washed his face. I opened the smelling salts under his nose, smelled them myself, shuddered. My teeth, he yelled. They're gone, I called, like to a child. All gone. The new ones, fool. I want I went off to get them. I knew them now. They were exactly like his mouth had been inside. He reached for them like a Juarez beggar, but his hands shook too badly. I'll put them in. Rinse first. I handed him the mouthwash. He rinsed and spat without lifting his head. I poured peroxide over the teeth and put them in his mouth. Hey, look, I held up Mamie's ivory mirror. Well, dadgum, he was laughing. A masterpiece, Grandpa. I laughed too, kissed his sweaty head. So there you go. Isn't that an amazing story? A young child pulling out her grandfather's teeth. That is that, that is a great recommendation. Um, just give us those details again. And uh, um, Lucia Berlin. 
Yeah, it's called A Manual for Cleaning Women, a superb collection of short stories and it's published by Picador. But Peter, listen, I've been going on about a book I love, but I know that you've been really enjoying a poetry book recently by one of the finest of poets, Ian Crichton Smith. And this book is called Deer on the High Hills. It's his selected poems, isn't it? And it's edited by John Greening and it's published by Carcanet in the UK, a fantastic publishing house. Would you tell us a little bit about that, about the book and about him? Because I know a lot of people listening may not be too aware of this poet in Crichton Smith. Yeah, I mean, I hope they are because, I mean, or, or will be or might be because he's, a, I think he's a great poet. He's, he's one of the best kind of Scottish poets of the 20th century, I think. And he was born in 1928. He died in 1998. I actually met him once um, when he was giving a reading in the Irish Writers' Centre with Michael Longley and mm-hmm. Oris Thomas, which is an amazing reading. And we spoke in Irish, or I, sp- I spoke in Irish, and he mm-hmm. answered me in, in Gaelic because he was also, I mean, he, he was a Gaelic speaker, Gaelic speaker, I should say, and, and he wrote in Gaelic as, as well as in English. And he was, I mean, he was born in Glasgow, but he was brought up on the island of Lewis. I mean, and the Gaelic poet Derek Thompson actually grew up in the same small town in Lewis as, as he did himself. So English was his second language, but he wrote a lot more in English than in Gaelic. But he also translated Sardy MacLean, for instance, into English. He then, you know, he went to Aberdeen. He took a degree in English mm. there. Um, he also wrote novels and, and stories, but I suppose it's as, it's as a poet that I would know him best. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. That Was that your time, Peter, when you were director of the Irish Writers' Centre, you invited him over? Yeah, sure, you? yeah. That's amazing. I, I don't think I did it. I think, I think it, was, it was something organised by the British was Council, it, as, far, yeah. as far as I remember. But what yeah, an amazing combination, Michael Longley yeah, and Oris Thomas. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that time, Peter, when there was a knock at the door and into, into the Writers' Centre foyer stepped a man who asked, was Dennis O'Driscoll anywhere to be found? And we, we all said, are you Oris Thomas? Do you remember that? That was quite funny. Sure. Anyway, that's great that you're talking about Ian Crichton Smith. And wasn't there a collected poems of his a few years back as well, Peter? Yeah, there been a couple. I mean, there was a collected poems back in 1992. In fact, I think I even remember reviewing it when it came out. But there was also a new collected poems that came out in, in 2011, which is big, again, big chunky book. And it's one of my own, I suppose, treasured books. Uh, along with a select, a select of poems that came out from Carcanet in the 80s, which mm. was kind of a slim sort of collection. But I think, I, I always think there's a, you know, there's always room for a selected poems. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a great reader of selected poems in, in general, because like, I suppose I greatly appreciate when someone goes to the bother of, you know, curating a poet's work or sifting through mm. it or deciding what the essential kind of achievements are and maybe bringing back into focus poems of the poet, him or himself or herself might have despised. And so one of the reasons that John Greening, who, who edits this book, gives for this selection is that he wants to remind people of, of the achievement and he feels that Ian Crichton Smith has maybe slipped off the radar a little. And I think that is a bit true. I mean, often when people think of Scottish poets of that generation, they'll think mm-hmm. of, you know, Norman McCaig or Edwin Morgan or George McKay Brown. And maybe Smith's, kind of ironic in a way, but maybe, maybe his own very prolificness had something to do with that in that the very diversity can cloud the view of the central preoccupations and achievement. And he was, he was such a prolific poet. I mean, he wrote in Gaelic as Ian McGowan, as I said earlier, and he was, as well as English, and he was a speedy writer. And it's a funny kind of thing that John Greening says in the afterword to this book. He famously reviewed 26 crime novels in a single weekend, and his own classic Consider the Lilies was apparently the work of a fortnight. Even before he took early retirement from teaching, he was writing compulsively the 12 novels in English and Gaelic, a similar number of short stories, plays for radio, stage, translations, innumerable poems. These came thick and fast, were seldom revised because he'd rather throw away a poem and start uh, on something else. And when he gave poetry readings, he rattled through them as if he was keen to get the next bus back to Argyll. I saw that David Wheatley in a recent review told a story of, I think it was Norman <laughs> McCaig saying, 
what's wrong? I wonder. It's been several days since the last collection from Crichton Smith. There must be something up. So anyway, so that's the kind of that's the kind of, and I love that kind of thing of you know he kind of threw poems out in a way, uh, and you know he wasn't <laughs> kind of a fussy sort of writer in a way. He didn't he didn't believe in kind of revisiting uh, the, the work. So so there is something. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love that idea of the yeah. energy and the force. And if he's reading, rattling it off, it'd be great to actually to go to a poetry reading like that because it means that it'll be very quick and speedy. Isn't that right, Peter? <laughs> yeah, well, he didn't always do himself justice. I think that was part of the problem. But he, but he could be very good and very funny as a reader as well. But I've always had his poems close at hand. I've often, you know, I've often brought, I have several kind of editions of a hardback collective poems that I always bring with me because I just love to open them. And, you know, the sheer variety uh, of mm. the poems is, is one of the things I value yeah. um, about. I mean, you were talking there about Greening saying that he he might have gone off the radar. I hope that a book like this brings him back on, on the radar again. But what kind of things does he talk about? What subjects are close to his heart? Well, I mean, there there are poems about his, a lot of poems about his pretty dark Calvinist heritage. You know, growing up on the island of Lewis, where there wasn't much time for artistic pursuits. And again, John Greening tells a story about him as a boy being reprimanded by his mother, who was a free church fundamentalist for making model hens. Why would you make wooden hens when the Lord has made real mm. ones? You know, you can almost imagine the kind of Taliban approving. But they had no, you know, he says, for instance, here they have no time for the fine graces of poetry. Or, you know, he resists the forces that would cure life of itself, he says in another poem. And there's lots of poems like that where he pits the darkness and, if you like, the glum religiosity of his childhood against the light and the imagination and creativity. And sometimes he creates his own alternative religion. Um, I'm thinking of a poem like I Build an Orange Church, yeah. for instance, which is oh, in, in actually, this Peter, book. Oh, actually, Peter, that would be lovely if you would read that for us. Sure. I build an orange church and put inside it a little orange minister in a pulpit that's dandelion yellow. I make a ceiling of intensive blue. The seats are heliotrope, the Bible's pink, hymn books are apple green. Picasso paints the walls with animals, the angels swoop in red. There's a sun of blinding nuclear light and so transform at all. But for the guilt, there's a small and black, sorry, (laughs) and so transform at all. But for the guilt that's small and black and creeps in when the door swings on its oiled hinges. So you nearly get it there, but for the guilt kind of creeping in on the oiled hinges at the end. But I mean, all through his life, I mean, Lewis remained for him a place of darkness and negativity. And it's it's kind of instilled in him a profound hatred of religion and dogma and any kind of narrowness. And you have to remember, I suppose, the very fact of his being a poet is, is itself an act of um, mm. rebellion against his own upbringing. I mean, he wrote a lot, as, as I've said, and Edwin Morgan, again, uh, a fine poet, commented interestingly on it. He says, uh, he wrote quickly, usually without revision and with the risk, which he was aware of, of his being careless and slapdash when he was not writing under good pressure. On the other hand, he gained in a sort of unstudied, often surprising lyrical quality, which he wouldn't have got any other way. Um, you know, so that's the kind of sense he's sort of, sort of something furious and impatient. Um, about yeah, about I like him. that, and also he sounds like he was a ferociously busy man between teaching and writing reviews. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. So it was as if he just had so much to get out. I like that the unfussiness yeah, yeah. of it all. So yeah. what about then the title poem, Deer on the High Hills? Yeah, I mean, the poem, the, yeah, the book is called Deer on the High Hills, Selected Poems. And of course, Deer on the High Hills is one of his masterpieces, I think, really. It's a poem. It's a sort of a, like a sustained meditation on, I don't know, the, the, the kind of physical presence and reality of, 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 you know, actual kind of 
deer, but also deer as symbol, something that, you know, hunted and pursued, as in the poems, and by the goddess Duncan Bond McIntyre, you know, deer as nature, imagination, something almost created by the human mind. A deer looks through you to the other side, and what it's what it is and sees is an inhuman pride, or you must build from the rain and stones till you can make a stylish deer on the high hills and let its leaps be unpredictable. So the, the deer is a kind of, again, a figure for, for the imagination um, it, itself. And, and Peter, how important was Gaelic to him? Uh, it was very important. I mean, I mean, it's he wrote he wrote about he wrote about it, you know, as well as writing in it. But he, he also wrote a poem like, for instance, Shall Gaelic Die, for instance, uh, where he where he considers that, and I'll give you just give you a quick blast of, of some of that um, to give you a flavour of, of it, you know. And it's kind of it's something that that would resonate a lot with with I think people in in this yeah. country, you know. When you turn your back on the door, does the door exist? Said Barclay, the Irishman who is alive in the soul. When the Highlands loses its language, will there be a Highlands? Said I, with my two coats losing perhaps the two, or you know, death is outside the language. The end of language is beyond language. You know, Wittgenstein didn't speak after his death. What language would he speak? In what language would you say Uragalic Bas, meaning Gaelic Gaelic died? You know, so so I suppose you know, I mean, genuinely bilingual poets are actually quite rare. I mean, if you think of you know, in, in Ireland you can think of people like Oh No Tourish or Rita Kelly mm. or Conneth Ellis or or nowadays, you know, Paddy Paddy Bush would be a, a good example. Or Dirin Ikriafa. Dirin would have would have uh, uh, would be another example, yeah. And I suppose, you know, that you know, he was he always felt that kind of conflict. I mean he did end up, I suppose, mainly writing in English, but he was you know, Gaelic was always there kind of in the background and very much, you know, a, a part of him, uh, you know, part of his kind of deep imagination. Yeah. I mean, Peter, I suppose ultimately, if you had to give a final line on Ian Crichton-Smith, what would you say? I think I give the final word to himself, actually, because I'll just read maybe the last, very last poet, or sorry, the very last poem in the book. I mean, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, I mean, for me, he's one of the most interesting 20th century poets in these islands. And this book is an excellent introduction to that mm. work. And this is the last poem in the book called The Poet. I have outdistanced the music. I am travelling in silence through the shadow of posthumous metres. What my metres will be, will be what I shall become. I am the skin-made drum which the wind will fill. Oh, thank you so much. That was Peter talking about Deer on the High Hills. Selected poems by Ian Crichton-Smith, edited by John Greening and published by Carcanet. We love to talk about poetry on Books for Breakfast. I was also talking about books that I'm looking forward to reading during September and in the coming months. The Pages by Hugo Hamilton, published by Fourth Estate. The Magician by Colm Tobin, forthcoming from Viking on the 23rd of September. And books that I've loved over the summer, especially in including A Manual for Cleaning Women, short stories by Lucia Berlin. And it's published by Picador if anyone's interested in picking up a copy of that. And as usual, details of all books will be available on our Books for Breakfast website, .buzzsprout.com. And I have to say, we are really looking forward to being back again in two weeks' time, where we will be celebrating 30 years of the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square, Dublin 1. Hard to believe, but brilliant news. And do join us then. Until then, happy reading to you all and goodbye.